All right, well, it's time to get started. Good morning, officially. Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I'm David Kaposha. We're continuing on in our chronological study of the Bible, currently in the book of 1 Samuel. Last week, we saw how God humbled a proud, unfaithful judge in Eli and raised up and exalted a new judge, a humble judge, an obedient judge in Samuel. In today's lesson, we're looking at how Samuel, or really the end of the judges period, Samuel provides the transition into the kingship. Samuel anoints Israel's first king. We're going to see how that happened, and we're going to see how that king ruled. Israel's first king, King Saul, he starts out well, but quickly turns aside from following Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And why? Why did Saul turn aside? Well, it all has to do with the main issue that we're going to be looking at today in the scripture, and that is the issue of fearing God versus fearing man. Now, ask yourselves this morning, do you struggle at all with the fear of man? Well, if you're honest, surely the answer is yes, because we all do at times. I mean, think, have you ever been unduly anxious over an upcoming conversation with somebody? Just thinking about it, just like, oh. Or have you ever intensely craved the love and acceptance of others? Or have you asked yourself, how is it you're ever going to be able to get by if you lose the support of certain friends or family members or maybe co-workers? We too are daily faced with the choice of whether we're going to fear God or fear man. But the Bible has much to say about this topic, especially in 1 Samuel, so we need to give close attention to what God's Spirit has for us this morning. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his special blessing on this time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people tuning in and for my brothers and sisters at Calvary. I pray that this would be a profitable and edifying time and that you would help me to be able to de declare your word accurately and with power. Lord, I don't have power, but your spirit has power. And I pray that your, your spirit would be at work to convict, encourage, and transform your people just as we are meant to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start by opening our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we're starting today. This is really where we ended last time. In the last chapter, or in this chapter rather, we got up to about 1 Samuel 7 last time. In this chapter, we are at the end of the judges period. Samuel is the last judge, these deliverer adjudicators in Israel. And this would be around 1050 BC. Samuel has just led Israel through national repentance. They've turned from their idols, turned back to God, and they've experienced deliverance from the oppressive Philistines. Now, the Philistines are not destroyed, but there was a measure of deliverance under Samuel after the people repented. But time has gone by. Samuel's getting old, and, well, what are we going to do about Israel's future? That's what's the concern as we come into 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so let's take a look at the text. We're going to read... Most of verses 1 to 22, but we'll start with just verses 1 to 9. So follow along with me as I'm reading from 1 Samuel 8. It says, And it came about, when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now 
appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the, king, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, that is Yahweh, covenant name of God there. Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Now we're going to skip over verses 10 to 18. In these verses, Samuel warns the leaders of Israel that their king that they want, he's going to take many of their people and their goods for his own use. And someday Israel will even cry out to God over the oppressive nature of their king. They say, we don't want this king anymore. And God says, I'm not going to listen to you in that day. Let's resume reading now in verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in Yahweh's hearing. Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Well, now, as we always do when we're trying to study a section of scripture, we want to go through that process of observe, interpret, apply. So we start with observations. Let's just look at the details, the basic details that appear in the sections we've read. In verse 1, we see that Samuel's old. He attempts to appoint his sons as judges over Israel after him. But there's a problem. Samuel's sons are evil. They accept bribes. They go after dishonest gain. Now, because of this situation, the elders gather together and they tell Samuel, Hey, we need a king to rule over us and judge Israel. Give us a king. And the elders of Israel, they point out in verse 5, that this will make Israel just like what? Like all the nations. The other nations around us, they have kings. We want one too. Now, had God said anything to Israel in the past when it came to a coming human king? Well, he surely did. And we've seen this even in our Sunday school class. At Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10, just a slight reference there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, it says, until the one to whom it belongs comes, and he shall have the dominion of the peoples. Or Numbers 24, Numbers 24, verses 17 to 19. Balaam, in his oracle, he says, A star shall arise in Jacob and a scepter from Israel. That's talking about a king. Or Deuteronomy 17, in the law of Moses itself, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, there are regulations as to how a king should act in Israel. God says, there's going to be a time when you're going to ask for a king. Here's how a king should act. And then 1 Samuel 2.10, a verse that we looked at together last time, Hannah prays a spirit-inspired prayer, and she acknowledges that Yahweh will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So, there's certainly been reference to kings before in the Old Testament. And have these passages treated a coming kingship positively, negatively, or in a neutral way? Well, surely it's positive. We're looking forward to the coming king that God himself will support and who will serve God. But in our passage, what's Samuel's reaction to the people's request for a king? 
Verse 6, it says, This displeased Samuel. He prays to God about it. Moreover, notice God's response in verses 7 and 9. He says, Samuel, do as they request. But he notes, Israel is not really rejecting you, Samuel, and your leadership. They're actually rejecting me and my leadership as king. God notes that this latest act fits with Israel's general pattern of rebellion and apostasy. They've been doing this since Egypt, God says. He tells Samuel, though, warn them about this coming king and report to them what this kingship is going to require of them. Well, Samuel does, but as we see in verse 19, the elders don't listen to Samuel's warning. They persist. They reiterate why they want a king. And it's not only, notice, that they can be like all the nations, but also so that the king may judge them, go out before them, and fight their battles. Now that last phrase is particularly significant because what did... Or, let me say it this way, who previously claimed that he would fight the battles on behalf of Israel and bring the victory? It was God. God says, I will go before you. I will fight for you. See this in Exodus 14, 14, Deuteronomy 1, 30, Joshua 23, 10. It's something that God has said again and again to Israel. But now Israel says, we want a human king to fight our battles. Well, Samuel repeats Israel's words to God, and God confirms that Samuel should appoint a king for Israel. Not the most encouraging passage, but let's, now that we've observed these details, let's ask some questions of interpretation, bringing together these details to make conclusions about something that's not explicitly stated. Now, how is the coming kingship presented here? Is it positive, negative, neutral? Well, surely it's negative. Right? Israel's request for a king is likened to rejecting God himself. You can't get much more evil and rebellious than that. But how can this be when previous scriptures painted the coming of a human king to Israel in such a positive light? How can it be positive in other scriptures but negative here? To help us to understand, let's see if there's anything the text mentions that would suggest why obtaining the kingship as they as they sought to do was evil. Let's first consider their method. As the people look for a king, they do not actually approach God, who is their king, ultimately. They don't approach God to find out whether it is appropriate that a human king should be raised up over them at this moment. Do not say, God, you know, we think we would like this. We think this would help us. We think this would be honoring to you. Would this please you? No. Instead, they demand a human king of Samuel. Right now. They do not consult God's approval or timing. And this is presumptuous. I can even, I would say this is even evil. So their method is at fault. But more importantly, their motivation. Let's consider their motivation. The Israelite elders give two main reasons as to why they want a king. The first one is that we might that we might be like all the nations, they say. Now ask yourselves, how often is righteous action going to be produced by seeking to be like those who don't know God? Uh, almost never? I mean, these other nations around Israel, they don't have a covenant with Yahweh. They don't have the one true God dwelling among them. These other nations, they serve false gods. They commit abominable deeds. And Israel says they want to be like them? Why would they say that? Well, surely it's because these Israel thinks these other nations have a good thing. 
and Israel's missing out. I mean, look at their kings. Look at how wise their system is. Look at what they can accomplish with that, that mighty king and all those big armies that that king is able to raise. We obviously are lagging behind. Man, we are missing out in Israel. We don't have a king. We don't have a king like all the nations. Really, Israel is discontent. They're coveting what the other nations have, and they are not satisfied. They distrust God's provision for them. God says, I'll be your king. I'll take care of you. Israel says, mm-mm. We're missing out. We need what the other nations got. So this is clearly sinful motivation. They want to be like the other nations. But along with that, they say, we want a king who will fight our battles for us. As we noted, God promised that he would fight Israel's battles on Israel's behalf. And in, indeed, time and time again, God did just that. He proved no human king, no human army can handle the power of Yahweh. These were mighty deliverance. But what's difficult about relying on God for victory? Well, it means you got to seek God. It means you got to obey Him. It means you can't just keep following after your sin if you want God to fight for you. It also means exercising uncomfortable faith. I mean, because yeah, God did deliver in mighty ways, but how many times was it only at the last moment? are only against overwhelming odds. Yeah, you 300 people, I want you to go against 120,000. Or yeah, they're, they're about to assault this city, uh, uh, an army bigger than the, or more than the number of uh, sand particles on the seashore. But don't worry, just pray. I'll take care of you. God's ways are glorious, but they really test Israel's faith. And Israel's tired of it. I mean, wouldn't it be nice, surely they're thinking something like this themselves, wouldn't it be nice if we had a king and a mighty army that we could see? I mean, we could look at the thousands of those soldiers and watch them march out against the enemy and our tall, strong, regal-looking ruler. We could see all that and, and we could feel comfortable and secure. Ah, the king will take care of it. Yeah, our army will take care of it. We don't have to worry so much about Relying on God now. Now this is subtle thinking. But God is not fooled. He calls out Israel's wickedness. He says, really? By asking for a king, according to these motivations, what they're really saying is that they'd rather have nothing to do with me. We don't have to keep worrying about pleasing Yahweh. Just give us a king and he'll take care of us. So why was it evil that Israel asked for a human king? Not because having a human king was evil in itself. It was the method and the motivation in Israel's asking for a king. It was always God's good design to give Israel a human king. But not so that Israel could stop paying attention to God or just pursue their own fleshly lusts. Rather, God's king was to act as an agent of justice and righteousness in the land, leading the people of Israel and even the surrounding nations toward God and not away from him. You go through the book of Judges, it's clear Israel needs a king to lead the people in a united way after Yahweh. But that's not why Israel wants a king. Even in Jesus' day, that's not the kind of king they want. They want a military deliverer who will fight their battles not someone who will lead them back to Yahweh in repentance. So Israel does evil.
But God tells Samuel to do as Israel requests. Give them the king. Why? If evil is in Israel's hearts, why grant their request? Why not refuse or even judge them for making that evil request? Well, a few answers come to mind. First of all, it is a judgment, actually. God was going to judge the evil request by giving Israel exactly what it wanted. You want a king like the surrounding nations? I'll give you a king like the surrounding nations. You think this king, though, is going to bring you happiness and security and deliverance, but I tell you, he's going to become to you a source of oppression. You will cry out to me because of your king, and this will be a judgment on you. And isn't this really the way that all sins and idols work? Sometimes in judgment, God says, you know what, you really want this idol? I'll give it to you. And you'll realize how unsatisfying it is and how oppressive it is. You don't, you don't want to experience that kind of judgment. That's why you want to keep following after God. So certainly this is granted partially as a judgment, but also it is just the faithfulness of God. God had already promised that Israel would have a coming human king. Now Israel sought this king for evil purposes, but that does not change the fact that God promised one. So he's going to keep his promise. He says, I'm still going to give him a king. I think there's a third element, though. It's not just a judgment. It's not just a testimony of God's faithfulness. It's also an act of love. It's an act of love. Remember, God chose to set his love on Israel because of his covenant with Abraham. This unilateral, grace-founded covenant with Abraham. God has determined to do good to Israel. And nothing is going to stop God from doing the good he has determined. He would still give Israel a good human king, just like he promised. A king after God's own heart. A king that would establish justice and direct the people back to God. But it wouldn't be Israel's first king. God's king would come via David. And ultimately, David's descendant, the greater David, Jesus Christ, the God-man. God had set his love on Israel, and he said, I'm going to give you a good king. First, the prototype in David, and later, the God-man, Savior, and Messiah, Jesus. So for the sake of his love, and for the sake of his good purposes of bringing that ultimate king to come, God granted Israel's, Israel's evil-motivated request for a king. So what happens next? We won't take the time to read the next few chapters, but I'll sum up a little bit of what we see in 1 Samuel 9 to 12. God raises up a man named Saul, a tall, handsome, kingly-looking Benjamite, to be Israel's first king. God tells Samuel to anoint Saul with the holy oil from the tabernacle, designating Saul as God's chosen and set-apart king. Really, that's Messiah. This is the anointed one. He's specially set-apart to Yahweh. God then changes Saul's heart. God's spirit comes upon Saul, empowers Saul for all the responsibilities of kingship. And at his coronation, Saul actually tries to hide himself. (laughs) He's not ready to become king, doesn't feel worthy to become king, but people find him and they, they proclaim him king. And this new kingdom of Israel, this is the first time we see a kingdom in Israel, it starts very optimistically. Ammonites, so people on the eastern side of Israel, one of their neighbors, they rise up and attack an Israelite city. And Saul, empowered by the Spirit of God, he goes and delivers Israel. But even kings are not immune to the principle that we saw last time with Samuel and Eli. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. 
When Saul begins to turn away from God, the kingship quickly becomes a curse, both on Israel and on Saul himself. Let's see how this happens. Take a look at 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, and we're going to start in verse 5. I'll uh, sum up verses 1 to 4. Saul has just kicked off another war with Philistia. He uh, smote one of the garrisons that they had in Canaan. They're ready to fight Israel. Therefore, he summons all Israel to get ready to fight against the Philistines. But Israel summons their armies too. And let's see, let's see how that plays out. Verse 5, 1 Samuel 13. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Let's start again with observations on this section. In verse 5, we hear about this Philistine army that's assembled against Israel. It's composed of people like the sand of the sea along with 6,000 horsemen and 30,000, or maybe more likely 3,000 in the original text, 6,000 horsemen and 3,000 chariots. Remember, chariots were feared war machines. Now, when Israel sees what they're up against, what does Israel do? Well, they run and hide. I mean, look at that huge army. Look at their machines. We can't win against them. So they scatter from Saul. Now, there are some who stay with Saul, but they're few. They're trembling. They're getting fewer and fewer every day. In verse 15, we're told Saul's down to just 600 people by the time Samuel arrives. Saul's at Gilgal, a certain town, waiting for Samuel. And verse 8 tells, that, verse 8 tells us that Saul waits for Samuel seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. Samuel apparently had said to Saul, I'm going to come within seven days, wait for me, I'm going to offer sacrifices, and I'm going to give you direction. But seven days have gone by, or most of seven days has gone by, and there's no sign of Samuel. And people were scattering from Saul. 
Battle with the Philistine horde is quickly approaching. Samuel's not come. So Saul commands that the animals for the peace and burnt offerings to God be brought to Saul, and he will offer them himself without Samuel. But as soon as he's done sacrificing the burnt offering, what happens? Samuel arrives. It's like in a movie, right? Very cinematic. It's like the smoke of the altar goes up, and when it clears for just a moment, bing, there's Samuel just standing there. Still within the appointed time. Now notice the end of verse 10. It's kind of a little bit surprising. You might expect that Saul would be a little sheepish, but he goes out to meet and greet Samuel like everything's great. Samuel says to Saul, what have you done? But notice Saul's response. He gives three reasons for why he's offered the sacrifice. Now, now, Samuel, I can explain. The people were scattering from me. You didn't come in the appointed time. And the Philistines are gathering at Michmash, and I hadn't asked Yahweh's favor yet via sacrifice. Notice how he concludes his defense in verse 12, Saul. He says, I forced myself to offer the sacrifice. What is noticeably missing from Saul's words to Samuel? Any confession of sin, any sort of repentance. And so how does Samuel respond? He does not give any credibility to Saul's defense. He doesn't say, oh, oh, okay, I understand. No, he instead declares five truths to Saul. He says, you've done foolishly. You've disobeyed God's command. You could have had your kingdom established perpetually, but now your kingdom shall not endure. God will raise up someone else to rule, a man after his own heart. Samuel then leaves Saul with his few trembling troops. That's not a good place to be left. Let's quickly ask a few interpretation questions again, now that we've observed. Saul does not admit any guilt here. Instead, his defense is clearly an effort at, at what? Is it not blame shifting? It's not my fault that people were scattering. I had to do something to keep them here and inspire them. It's the people's fault. If they'd stuck around, I wouldn't have had to do this. Or it's not my fault, Samuel, you didn't come on time. I had to do something since you failed. Or it's not my fault, look, the Philistines are ready to attack. I had to do something to get God on my side. If it weren't for the Philistines, I wouldn't have done it. But none of these are sufficient excuses. What's even more interesting is when Saul says he forced himself. I forced myself to do it. What does this phrase imply about Saul's action? It implies a certain necessity and even nobility in what Saul did. You know, I really didn't want to do it. But I, I was strong enough to overcome my feelings that told me not to do it for the greater good. I had to do what was necessary. I was strong enough to do it. I was able to force myself. Yeah, I know. It's crazy to go do this without you, Samuel. But I was able to do it. Here's the king of Israel. Raised up by God himself. But he's not leading the people to follow after God in faith. What's he doing? He is sinning against God himself. And setting a terrible example for Israel. But before we analyze Saul further and what's really going on in his heart, let's take a look at another great failure that Saul participates in in 1 Samuel 15. Turn over to 1 Samuel 15. 
in the intervening text, Jonathan, the son of Saul, acts full of faith in God and he initiates deliverance against the Philistines. The Philistines flee. Remember these massive Philistines. Philistines flee from Jonathan. Israel pursues. God grants victory. Saul then fights a number of other wars with Israel's neighbors and Saul performs valiantly. And then God sends a message to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, in verses 1 to 3, God commands Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites. That's the people who lived in the kind of southern section of Canaan. Completely destroy them, men, women, children, and their animals. Why? Because of the, how the Amalekites treated Israel when Israel came up from Egypt and went to go into the Promised Land. The Amalekites opposed Israel. They even attacked Israel. God says, I'm remembering that, and now it's time for judgment. Saul, you've been officially commissioned to be my agent of judgment and utterly destroy this people and their animals. Let's see how Saul responds to this commission from God. Follow along with me starting in verse 4 of chapter 15. It says, Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as he go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. We're going to keep going here. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to Yahweh all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of Yahweh, I have carried out the command of Yahweh. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And Yahweh anointed you king over Israel. And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the mission on which Yahweh sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God of Gilgal. Samuel said, 
has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me, that I may worship Yahweh your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped Yahweh. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before Yahweh at Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is a much larger section. There's a lot we could say about it. Let's just make certain observations with the time that we have. Saul received a commission from God, but how did Saul respond to that commission? Did he fulfill what God called him to do? Well, Saul destroys most of the Amalekites, but he spares the king, and he spares the best of the livestock. Also hear later on in the scriptures that there are still Amalekite people that Saul spared as well, because they're going to come back to afflict Israel. So Saul is not complete in his charge or in his obedience to God. And in response, God tells Samuel that God regrets making Saul king. Saul is disobedient. Samuel too is distressed over Saul and he cries out all night to God. Then Samuel goes to meet Saul. But when he does, he hears that Saul's moved on to a different place. But in the meantime, according to verse 12, what has Saul done? He set up a monument. Oh, good, a monument to Yahweh. Oh, no, this is a monument to himself, a monument to Saul. When Samuel finally catches up with Saul, notice Saul's reception of Samuel. <laughs> he blesses Samuel and reports that he, Saul, has fulfilled God's command. But then Samuel asks pointedly, uh, why do I hear all the sounds of animals? Saul explains, oh, well, yeah, the people, and not me, they brought the animals to sacrifice to God. Samuel reminds Saul of how God made Saul king. Saul used to be humble. God made him king. And then God commissioned Saul specifically to destroy all the Amalekites and their animals. Samuel asks Saul, why did you not obey God? Saul, notice in verse 20, he insists that he has obeyed God. 
But the people were the ones who took the spoil as sacrifices. And then Samuel says some pretty profound poetry. He points out to Saul some basic truths. To God, what is better than any sacrifice or religious ritual? Obedience. What is worse than even divination or idol worship? Disobedience. And he solemnly pronounces on Saul, because you have rejected God and his word, God has rejected you from being king. He reiterating what he had said before. This is doubly confirmed, Saul. You will not be king over Israel. Now Saul does something surprising in verse 24. He admits his sin. He confesses his sin and the reason for it. And notice the reason. He says, I feared the people. I didn't want to lose their approval or support. That's why I did it. He asks for Samuel's pardon. And then he asks for Samuel to go with him to worship. But Samuel refuses. He says, I'm not going with you. You rejected God. Saul then seizes Samuel's garment. You've got to imagine that must have been a somewhat forceful grab. And the garment tears. And then Samuel reiterates to Saul that God has torn the kingdom from Saul. It's going to give it to a better man. He says, God will not change his mind about this because God is not a man that he should change his mind. And then Saul confesses his sin again, but then requests that Samuel go with him to worship. And notice the reason, verse 30, that you, or that I might be honored before the elders and the people of Israel. Samuel acquiesces, and he follows Saul and worships together before the people. And then notice Samuel does something that Saul would not do. He calls for Agag to be brought forth, and he kills Agag. But not just kills. It says he hewed him, or he hacked him to pieces. He cut Agag into little bits. Now, whoa. <laughs> First of all, that's a little gory. Second of all, wow, Samuel's an old man, and he's doing this? And that's what he does. Samuel and Saul then separate, and we're told that Samuel continues to grieve over Saul. And God, again, we're told, regrets making Saul king over Israel. So again, not a super happy section, but a very instructive one. Now that we've made these observations, let's go again to interpretation questions. Yeah, Mark, you've mentioned a few comments. It is interesting that Saul says, your God, Yahweh, your God, doesn't say my God. Is that loaded with significance? Possibly. Maybe he didn't feel right saying my God. So there's a little bit of a conscience working on him. But let's uh, ask some interpretation questions. Why does Samuel hack Agag to pieces? I mean, oof, isn't that a little much? Well, clearly this is an object lesson, isn't it? Saul was not careful to obey the whole command of God, and he left some of it undone. But Samuel, in contrast, he's careful to obey God's word so much that he will utterly make sure that it is done. Not just by running Agag through, but by cutting him into little bits. Saul... You see what you should have done? Something like this. Now the question of obedience is never, how little do I need to do before it's sin? The question instead is, how much can I do to make sure that I fully please God? You ever find yourself thinking in terms of bare minimums? Ugh, what's the minimum I have to do to lead my family spiritually? Ugh, what's the minimum I have to do to be involved in the church? If you're thinking that way, you are thinking foolishly. You're thinking... The opposite of Samuel here, you're thinking more like Saul. 
Why had Saul left Agag alive in the first place? I mean, you killed all the rest. Why did you leave their king alive? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us in particular, but likely, just because of the behavior of other kings at this time, it was to treat him as a trophy. Kings often would show off other captive kings as symbol of their own power, their own glory. If you had a little collection of kings you conquered, that would make you seem like a really great, a really great king, a really great conqueror. So Saul's indulging in that. When Saul's confronted over his disobedience, what do we see him doing again? protesting his innocence, and shifting blame. Now this time, though, Saul eventually admits his sin, and he even admits the reason for his sin. It was because he feared the people. Now why would fear of man, why would fear of the people cause Saul to leave the best animals alive? Can you see the connection? Well, the people wanted these animals. And Saul was afraid of opposing that desire. If I force these people to give up the animals that they really want, well, people might turn against me. Maybe they won't support me in my wars anymore. Or maybe they'll remove me as king. So I got to keep the people on my side. I have to let them take the animals. That's what Saul was thinking. Saul admits this. He admits his sin, but... Does he repent of it? Does he actually turn from this fear of man and turn back to fearing Yahweh? I think the answer is clearly no. And how do we know that from the passage? Look at the way he treats Samuel at the end. Saul insists that Samuel go with him. Why? So that Saul might be honored in front of the people. He admits his fear of man, but then he says, Please help me indulge my fear of man. Don't let me be dishonored. You walk out of here with that disapproving face. Everybody's going to know that you rebuked me. Please don't do that. Come with me. Worship with me. Show me that. Show everyone that you support me. I need that. Saul's still behaving according to the same paradigm that he was behaving before. He craves the honor and support of the people. And he says, Samuel, you can't leave. I need you to honor me. He doesn't change. So in these last two passages, in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15, we see Saul committing serious sins, direct rebellion against Yahweh. He's not waiting for Samuel in order to get God's direction or offer sacrifices. He's deliberately disobeying God's charge and his mission against the Amalekites. But based on what we've seen and heard of Saul, what heart sins are at the root of his disobedience? Saul's partially said it himself. But is it not both pride and fear of man? Yeah, he's committing certain external sins, but they're all motivated by these two factors, pride and fear of man. Saul thinks nothing of making monuments to himself, showing off captured kings as trophies, and excusing his sins as actually piety. I forced myself, Samuel. This is because Saul has turned away from that humble perspective he had. He now sees himself as deserving of honor, Praise, submission, support. doesn't remember that only God really deserves these things. And anything that Saul has, including his kingship, is a gift. It's a gift from God. To be gratefully accepted and responsibly exercised, but not clung to. Let Yahweh do what seems best to him. 
Don't sin in order to keep some treasure that Yahweh has given you. Saul also fears. Fears man. He fears the desertion of the Israelites. He fears the onslaught of the Philistines. He fears the animosity of his soldiers after they plundered the Amalekites. At all costs, Israel wants to secure the approval of his fellow Israelites because Saul thinks, if the Israelites are on my side, then I can protect what I really, really value. I can protect the kingship. I can stroke my pride. And I can secure myself against the enemies of Israel. If I just have the people on my side, I'll be safe. You can see there's a parallel between what we've seen in 1 Samuel 8 and what we've seen in these latter two chapters. Uh, I see, Dwayne and Judy, you mentioned a verse. We're going to come back to that verse at the end because it's a good summary of, of what we're seeing here. But there's the same error in judgment made by Israel as made by Saul. Do you see it? In both instances, there is a foolish trust in the visible, the visible things of the world, over the invisible God. While the king was the fleshly source of security for the Israelites. Oh, if we just had a strong king, we'll be safe. The people were the fleshly source of security for Saul. Oh, if I just have their support, I'll be safe. We'll be safe. And when it came to battles, Saul performed bravely when the numbers were on his side. But when victory looked impossible, Saul despaired along with the people. Even in his devotion to God, Saul looked to externals rather than the internal essence. Twice, Saul figures that he can just sacrifice the correct animals to God, and that will be more important than actually obeying God. That will cover it. Saul, just like Israel, was not willing to put his trust in the invisible God for deliverance, but instead he looked to people, he looked to worldly wisdom, he looked to his own performance, he looked to rituals in order to get what he wanted. And get what he needed or what he thought he needed but in this this fatal miscalculation Saul essentially rejected God as did Israel and thus God rejected Saul you know Saul's life and we'll see this more Saul's life is really a profound warning to us today by clinging tightly to the kingship and Longing inordinately for the approval of people, Saul ensured that he would lose the kingship and be disapproved by God. You know, because that is often what it comes down to. Which do you love more, the approval of men or the approval of God? Saul loved and trusted in earthly treasures more than God. And in doing so, he ended up losing both his earthly treasures and God. It's the most foolish calculation. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is fundamental to Christianity, right? This is fundamental to true religion. The way up is the way down. If you want security, exaltation, vindication, it comes by humbling yourself before God and proceeding after him in obedience, letting go of all the treasures of the world, letting go of any idol that you had. But if you cling to anything in the world, you say, no, this is great. I need this. I must have this. Well, what's the inevitable result? That thing won't satisfy you. That thing won't secure you. And 
you can't keep it. You'll lose it. And even worse, you'll lose God. Your God says you can't serve me and idols at the same time. Consider the exact opposite of what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 6. Matthew 6.30 But seek, seek first the Lord and his kingdom and all these things, all these physical things, all these things you worry about or often get tempted to be concerned about, these things will be added to you. God will take care of it. I mean, isn't this the most basically wise calculation that you can make? Hmm. Turn against God, trust in man, I won't get the things that I need, and I'll lose God. Or, trust in God, receive God in eternal life, and get God's perfect, perfect provision in my life. Who wouldn't do that? Well, it takes faith. It takes an uncomfortable faith, doesn't it? It takes that humbling yourself before God, which Saul was not willing to do, which Israel was not willing to do. And thus, they reap the consequences of their proud way. Now, pride and fear of man, they, they really do go together. And even as Christians, those can be things that we fall into. The Spirit is speaking to us from this passage that we are to turn away from that. Just repent from that faulty way of thinking, that proud way of thinking, and instead follow after God, trust in God. We're now essentially moving into application now, and let's do that in a more formal way. I kind of had to restrain myself in terms of applications from this passage because there's so many that we could talk about, especially when it comes to the fear of man and dealing with sin at a root level. But I'm just going to boil it down into two main applications. I hope that you'll continue to meditate over these passages and what you've heard today. Consider these things more and how they should make a difference in your life. But two, two applications I want to bring to your attention, two main applications. Remember always, the third aspect of Bible study, it's not really complete until you've applied it. We're meant to be changed by the Word of God. So how are we meant to be changed? Number one, beware trusting in the broken reeds of this world. Now when I say broken reed, I'm referring to, well actually this is a, a phrase used in the scriptures. Somebody says, you know, Israel's trusting in that broken reed of Egypt, that if a man leads on it, it will break and it will pierce his hand. And you know what? The securities of this world, they're just like that. They're broken reeds. When you try and lean on it, not only does it not support you, but it, the, the sharp part of it goes right into your hand and cuts you. That's what it's like when you turn to some false security, some uncertain security of this world. And we're very tempted to do this, right? In our better moments, when we're thinking soberly and we're thinking scripturally, yeah, we say, oh no, I trust God. But... So often we're tempted to depart from God and trust in something else. Look for something else for our security or satisfaction. Money, the government, our health, the love and support of friends and family, popularity, hard work, medicine and technology. Many things. Sinful flesh wants to go to these things and, and try and cling to them for security. Why? Because they're visible. And because having them seems to suggest you won't need to rely on God anymore. Oh, I don't have to worry. Look at all the money we've saved. I don't have to worry. I've got all these friends who can support me, support us if things start going badly. But will any of these or anything like them truly secure you from life's troubles? Will they always keep you safe and at peace? 
far from it. Any of these so-called sources of security, they will bring with them troubles themselves and they can all be lost in an instant. Money, health, technology, medicine, friends, they can all be lost. And they often are. Brothers and sisters, let us not be taken in by the thought of, if I only had blank, then I could be happy and secure. But until then, ugh, I just, I can't be at rest. If we're thinking that way, we're relying on the broken reeds of the world. We'll never find true security, never find true peace. And worse, we'll put in danger our eternal security. Because God says, if you're trusting in something else, you're not trusting in me. And that, that brings judgment. None of these things, money, technology, they're not going to secure eternal life for you. That's only in the mercy and grace of God and Jesus Christ. So really, for both, why look to the broken reeds of the world for your provision in this life and also for your provision in the life to come? And certainly, don't pray to God that you might receive some worldly security so that you don't need him anymore. Now, we won't express this to God, but in our hearts, sometimes we can be thinking this, right? Oh God, I just really want you to change the situation so I'm not so forced to rely on you. Let's not trust in the broken reeds of the world, but what instead should we do? Trust our invisible and faithful God. This is the same lesson that God is trying to teach Israel again and again in the Old Testament, and it's the same lesson that we need to learn too. Everything on earth will fail, but God will not. Now, yes, he will make his people exercise uncomfortable faith. He will bring about glorious deliverance at the right time, but it's maybe not the time that you want or the time that you expect. It will require you to humble yourself and say, God knows what he's doing. I don't deserve anything. God is being gracious to me. God is the only steadfast rock. He is the sovereign Lord. He can and will take care of you if you will look to him. You can know that if you have God, nothing truly can shake you. Now, if you stand up for God, if you follow after God, it may cost you. It may cost you dearly. It may cost you even those things that we would otherwise cling to for security. It may cost you your money. It may cost you your possessions. It may cost you your friends, even your family. But you know what? If it does, you will still be all right. Why? Because you have God. You have the rock. What else do you need? You know the words of Martin Luther's famous hymn, Our Mighty Fortress is Our God. The last verse says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. If you know God and Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior, then you have an unshakably secure place in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will not pass away. If you have that, and if you have God on your side, why fear? Why fear man? Why fear the loss of anything in this world? You won't lose what you ultimately need. You won't lose any ultimate treasure. You won't lose God, and you won't lose your place in God's kingdom, 
where you will dwell with him and he with you. So what does this mean? We need to take this truth seriously. We need to actually start living by faith and not by sight. This is something that we can so easily affirm with our mouths and yet not do practically with our lives. You know, I was thinking about this. I was part of a Bible study yesterday where we were talking all about the sovereignty of God. God is indeed sovereign, but do we actually live in light of that truth? I mean, if, if God is really all-powerful and he's really on our side, then why are we so fearful all the time? Why do like a slight challenge come to our faith and we say, oh no, what am I going to do? Instead of realizing, Psh, I have God on my side. Yeah, things might be a little difficult, but the Lord will provide. Why am I going to fear? And the scripture says the same thing. If God is for us, who can be against us? And one of the Psalms says, by, our, by my God, I can run against a troop. I can face a whole troop of enemies. By my God, I can leap over a wall. I don't know about you, but it's pretty difficult to leap over a wall. But he says, if God is with me, then I know he can enable me to do whatever he's called me to do. Why be afraid? So ask yourselves. I mean, actually, I should say this first. This may sound really radical, but it's basic to being a Christian. Isn't this fundamental to being a follower of Christ? No longer fear the world or man, but instead fear God. Revere God and say, I, at the uttermost, I do not want to dishonor God. I don't want to with my life, by submitting to anxiety and fear, by say essentially to God, God, I can't trust you. You're not worthy of my trust. You just haven't given me a good enough track record to believe you. A reverence for God wants nothing to do with that kind of thinking or heart speaking. It says, no, God, I want, you are the true God and you are totally worthy of my trust and adoration. Lord, you'll provide. This will be hard. Maybe this will be hard. Maybe it won't be. But Lord, you'll provide. So where do you need to apply this truth in your life? It's fundamental. We're going to hear it again and again in the scriptures. Where do you need to apply it today? Where's that, that aspect of fearing man or just fear in general where you say, oh, I don't know if I can trust God. You can trust God. And if you're willing to, you'll be blessed and you'll be vindicated. But if you're not willing to, remember Saul. Remember Israel. In their fear, they rejected God in order to obtain the, the favor of man. But what do they receive? The rejection of God. You don't want to be rejected by God. Not when such a blessed alternative exists. As was referred to in the comments, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be exalted. That's a promise. And you can take hold of it because God's word is true. And some other comments there I noticed from Mark. John 12, 43, we saw people didn't go after Christ because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And that is a snare. And then Mark also mentions Hebrews 12, 27, 29. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a God who is with us, so we don't have to fear. Here, Roy, mentioned you another, Roy mentions another application. This is fundamental when it comes to the gospel, right? Proclaiming the gospel. We fear the reaction of people, and that's often why we don't speak. 
But let's remember, we have God on our side. They don't have anything on their side. Their arm is the arm of flesh, to use scriptural language. But our strength is in the Lord. If God is working that person's heart, he will turn. Even if you don't give a perfect presentation, his heart will believe. Maybe not immediately. Maybe you're just planting a seed. But why are you afraid? Be faithful. God will vindicate you. And any negative response you get, it won't really be able to shake you. Now, of course, we, nobody wants a hostile response. Nobody wants people to, to dislike them and hate them. And it hurts. It hurts whenever you experience that. But it shouldn't unduly shake you. It shouldn't rattle you to your core and you say, Oh, I, I will never do that again. Because that's not the heart of faith. And that's not the heart that is intent on pleasing the Lord above all. That's the heart that fears man. We don't want that. Again, remembering the example of Saul. Well, that's it for this week. If you have other questions or comments, as others have done, you can post them in the chat. I'll, I'll stay around a little bit afterwards to interact with you. Or of course, you can always email me at dafkaposha at gmail.com. Next week, we look at what has already been alluded to in this lesson. God says, I'm raising up a different king, a king after my own heart. And we're going to see how God indeed does that with certain shepherd, young shepherd named David. God's true king will come to Israel through David. But even he is just the prototype of a much greater king that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's close our time of study with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know that this is a, a challenging word from your spirit today because it gets to what is a fundamental conflict that we all have in ourselves, which is the fear of man versus the fear of you. Oh God, deliver us from the fear of man. Deliver us, Lord, from relying on mere flesh for strength and security. Jeremiah 17, Lord, I'm reminded of that text, says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. But later on it says, but blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust and his strength. Lord, we want that. Enable us to do that, God. We know it will require us to be humble. It will require our repentance and letting go of any earthly treasure. But please, Spirit of God, enable us to do that. Lord, if any have been fundamentally trusting in something else other than you for security in this world and salvation in the next, I pray that they would repent. And that today, Lord, they would repent and believe in the only Savior and Rock. Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you bless the rest of the time of worship and learning today. And thank you for these people who have turned in to listen. I pray that you would work wonderfully in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all again for joining me in this time of study. I'll hang around for a little bit afterwards if you would like to ask a question or share a comment. But uh, otherwise, I'll see you in the other live stream service and I'll see you next week.